0: Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou
1: and Daniel Puentes.
0: Today we welcome
2: John, Kayla, and Justin. May you please introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Kayla Connor. I'm here today with my lab mates, John Kaletka and Justin Lee. We are all third-year PhD students in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. We are doing our PhD work in the Hardy Lab. And we're here today to talk about our research and what we hope to get out of it in our years here at MSU. So I study placental infection. And so I'm really interested in how this organ that's so important to pregnancy, what happens to it when a mother becomes infected during that pregnancy and what that means for the outcome of the pregnancy. All
3: right. So I'm John Kolodka. So what I study is how bacterial infection changes extracellular vesicles. So extracellular vesicles are these tiny products like compartments secreted by nearly all type of cells in the body. And you can kind of think of them as like mailmen for the cells. They allow communication between neighboring cells and even when they get into the bloodstream throughout the body. So I look at see how intracellular bacterial infection of those cells changes the production of extracellular vesicles and how those recruit and activate the immune system.
4: Hi, I'm Justin. So what I study is I study prenatal infection, meaning... When mothers get infected during pregnancy, there has been association that there might be higher risk of having autism, schizophrenia, or bipolar.
3: So that's what I'm interested in.
0: Are you all looking at the same type of infections?
3: Uh, yes. Yeah. So what the organism that the bacterium that we study is *Listeria monocytogenes*. It's a foodborne pathogen, and it's one of the portions of populations that are at risk are pregnant women. And it also affects other types of immunocompromised, such as the elderly are sick. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we all study uh, listeria infections.
2: It's really nice using listeria as our model just because listeria is particularly problematic for pregnant women, like John said. And it's actually the reason that pregnant women are advised not to eat soft cheeses or lunch meats and things like that. They've been known to be contaminated with listeria, and once that enters the mother and it can it can cause infection and travel to the placenta, which, like I said, that's kind of what I study, but it can affect the outcome of the pregnancy, no matter what the infection is. But Listeria is a very nice representation that kind of connects it to the real world and what we what we already know about infection and pregnancy.:
1: Can we remind our audience what the placenta actually is?
2: Yeah, so the placenta is an organ that develops in the mother during pregnancy, and it's sort of the interface between the fetus and the mother. And this is where any sort of exchange is going to happen. This is how the fetus gets nutrients, how there's any sort of communication between the mother and the fetus during pregnancy. It's going to happen through the placenta, and it's very important that it functions normally and fully in order to maintain the pregnancy and keep the fetus alive. And how does listeria impact the placenta negatively? So that's kind of what we're still studying. Listeria can enter the placenta and can cause a lot of negative outcomes, whether that be cell death, causing cell death, or recruiting immune cells into the placenta that shouldn't be there. Or like John studies, it can change the way the, the placenta communicates between the fetus and the mothers. So there are a lot of different facets to this problem.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what organism you're studying to look at how the placenta is affected by this bacteria?
2: So we use C D1 mice, and these are just mice that are they have a very robust immune system, and we're able to infect them with listeria in a way that the mothers don't actually see the negative outcomes of the infection, but it localizes to the placenta. So any negative outcome we see is gonna be local- localized to the placenta and the fetus. We also use a biologically engineered strain of Listeria that we have engineered to be bioluminescent, which means that it lights up. So it's really convenient because we can infect our mice with it and we can monitor it throughout the cycle of infection we can see how much it's grown or which of the fetuses is affected because mice do typically have between we've seen usually between 10 and 15 fetuses in a mother in our experiments and so some of them become infected and some don't
1: is there a particular reason why some of these mothers don't get infected in the first
3: place so all the, mi- the mothers that we inject, uh, all the m- mother mice that we inject, obviously all of them get infected, but we're not really sure why. So some of the particular placentas don't get infected while others do. We don't know if it's, there's this idea that it's difficult for the bacteria to disseminate and reach the placenta. So there could be like such a low number are actually able to reach those placentas. That could be why only a couple of them do. But once they um, are able to establish an infection, they replicate and grow a lot. So we do see uh, large amounts of the ones that are infected. So it might just be uh, difficult to reach because it's just kind of a difficult barrier to uh, entry.
1: So it was mentioned earlier that listeria can be found in different foods. Is there a particular food group that it thrives in relative to others like dairy or meat? So listeria can be found on like
4: refrigerated food, because it can grow at uh, four Celsius, so you could find on um, like fruits, all veggies. I think also like uh, ham and stuff like that, and cheeses.
0: So if a mother eats this, does she know that she's actually eating the listeria? Like, will she actually feel sick? With, of like if she got food poisoning, or will she be okay?
3: Uh, most of the time, the mothers are asymptomatic, so they uh, don't know that there is an infection that occurs until the negative outcome for the baby. And usually you don't see that until after the mother has given birth to
1: the child.
2: Right. And yeah. that's where it becomes problematic because we don't see any sort of negative outcome until there is a miscarriage or until, like Justin is studying, later in life the, the offspring develops and grows and later in life they're diagnosed with some sort of neuropsychological disorder that could be due, in part, to altered development in the womb.
0: This is quite concerning, considering that mothers are asymptomatic and that they don't really know that they're consuming it. So how can they prevent actually contracting listeria and eating it? Because a lot of our food is refrigerated all the time.
3: Yeah, so Kayla kind of mentioned this briefly before, but listeria is the reason that uh, mothers are recommended not to eat any soft cheeses or deli meats or anything like that, anything that won't be cooked before prior to ingestion. Also, the FDA is really good at regulating for listeria. Um, listeria has a zero tolerance limit when testing for food. Basically, if they found any single trace of uh, listeria bacterium in there, all that food gets recalled. So that's partially because it can cause those negative side effects, also because listeria can grow at uh, refrigerator temp- temperatures. So if even a single bacterium cell uh, gets through, then you can see a rapid growth. So there's a lot of preventive me- measures, both at the regulation level, also at the personal level. That are being taken to help prevent this disease from happening.
0: Is your lab only looking at listeria, or are there other viruses or bacteria that you are also investigating?
2: For this particular model where we're looking at pregnancy, we only use listeria. There are other labs on campus that study different infections like uh, Group B Streptococcus, which is a a more common, I believe, infection that can affect the outcome of the pregnancy. We do have other projects in the lab where we look at other pathogens that can cause disease, but not in the scope of pregnancy and prenatal development.
1: Has any of your research projects actually looked at how much of a role antibacterial resistance plays in listeria?
3: None of our projects directly look at antibacterial resistance. Listeria is not typically thought of as having a lot of antibacterial resistant genes, but uh, still bacterial treatments, still difficult to treat listeria. There's a pretty high mortality rate for the level of incidence that there is, but it's not generally thought of directly as antibiotic resistance.
1: And what does that mean? You said a high level of mortality versus incidence. Yeah.
3: So listeria has a fairly low rate of infection. So maybe like 3,000 reported cases a year across the United States. So it's pretty difficult to get Listeria, but the amount of people, about of the people that are infected, has a pretty high, something about 20% of uh, those cases are fatal. Which, admittedly, a lot of those are prenatal for the fetuses, but still a very high instant or, uh, fatality rate.
0: Thanks, John. I would like to know more about your studies with the extracellular vesicles. Could you please explain a little bit more about your project?
3: Yeah, so basically, so... More specifically on my project, I use uh, what are called uh, trophoblast stem cells. So trophoblasts line the outside of placenta, so they so whereas uh, pl- the placenta is the interface between the mother and the fetus, um, the trophoblasts are kind of the interface between the placenta and the mother bloodstream. Um, so I use those, and basically what I do is I infect those with hysteria, give it time to grow, and then collect extracellular vesicles from those. And then I take those vesicles, um, these are tiny little particles, actually pretty difficult to isolate, and then I treat immune cells with them and they engage the response of those immune cells.
1: And what have the results of
3: those tests shown? Basically that we do see um, activation of the immune system. They start secreting some cytokines, and then they do some other interesting stuff if we then infect uh, them with listeria on top of that.
0: Are you, in, are you loading the extracellular vesicles with the listeria, or are you infecting the cells and putting the extracellular vesicles with it?
3: So we don't load the extracellular vesicles with anything. We just collect them from the infected cells. And then when we treat the immune system, the immune cells with them, we give a while for those, basically the immune cells to activate, and then uh, we then infect with listeria to kind of see if the extracellular vesicles are able to uh, give any protection to those immune cells.
0: And are you seeing inflammation go up, like some of the cytokines that you're seeing? um, Are some of them like inflammasomes and stuff like that?
3: Yeah, so one of the ones I study, TNF-alpha, it's a cytokine and it's very important for the immune response and inflammation, like you just said. So, And that's very important for containing bacterial infections. So we do see these EVs could be a source of inflammation throughout the body. So we
1: just talked about cellular communication down to that microscopic level. Kayla, can you tell us a little bit about how that informs your research project and how it affects the structure of the placenta as a whole?
2: Yeah, so I like like you just said, I study the structure and function of the placenta as a whole, while John kind of studies communication between cells within the placenta. And I'm really interested in how this cellular communication that John is studying, how these different factors that are secreted and and what they're recruiting to the placenta, how this all affects the placenta's overall function and structure. So we know from previous research that the, the placenta can change in structure and change in function due to disease, and that can affect the outcome of the pregnancy. If you have a placenta that's not functioning properly, you can have miscarriage or preterm birth or a lot of different outcomes that are not ideal for the pregnancy. So I'm really interested in what happens At the placental level, when we infect a mother during pregnancy with listeria and what these different immune cells that are being recruited, what these different immunomodulatory factors that are released in the placenta, what do they mean for the overall structure and function? Is it functioning like it should?
1: And then how how do you do that?
2: So like I said earlier, we use CD1 mice where we are able to infect them during pregnancy. After a course of infection, we are able to dissect out the placentas. And I do a lot of different analyses on these, whether that be looking at the gross anatomy of the placenta, how much does it weigh, how how what's its cellular composition, things like that. I look at different metabolites that are found within the placenta. I study different, different cells that are in the placenta, like what cells are infiltrating as a result of infection. So there are a lot of different angles that I take to study this. That's cool. You look
0: at the metabolism, different cells, and other different interactions within the placentum. Do you do any type of imaging? Like, Can you see maybe changes in the fibers, like does the placenta get stiffer? Do you see, like, maybe the placenta getting larger or smaller, maybe, in different stages of the pregnancy? Like, do you look at different stages of the pregnancy, too?
2: That's a really good question. Right now, we're only looking at one stage in pregnancy, sort of the end point of pregnancy. And eventually, we do hope to study other stages of pregnancy. We also, it's on my list to, to do some imaging of these placentas, um, whether that be MRI, which is what I'm probably most interested in eventually. But also pretty close up on my list of next things to do would be histological analysis, where we're, we are actually looking at these structures more finely and more on the microscopic level than rather than the gross anatomy. And can you please define what histological analysis is? Yeah, so that means that we're looking at the tissue structure and what the tissues look like and, and how healthy or unhealthy they look in the organ.
1: Great, so it sounds like we have a pretty comprehensive overview of how both of you are looking at what happens to the placenta during pregnancy. But Justin, you're looking at what happens to the offspring after birth has occurred. How do you look at the how the behavior changes in your rat models? I haven't actually done the
4: behavior test yet, but the prenatal infection has been associated with having increased in in like autism, schizophrenia, or bipolar. So what people do is they set up some kind of a behavior experiment such as self grooming, marble burying behavior or exploration. So. Autism, autistic kids, they tend to have repetitive behaviors, so that's what they look for. And obviously, we can diagnose, like, oh, this mouse has some kind of autism. But we do look for uh, different types of behaviors.
0: You study molecular biology. How are you doing a behavioral project? Like, how how do you have the background for that?
4: Yeah, so that's a great question. And one of my committees uh, asked, like, how you're going to do it. So I'm going to do a collaboration from a neuroscience department, um, Dr. Alyssa Venema. So we're going to do collaboration with her and see well, where things go
1: from there. What are some of the things that you would expect these mice to exhibit? So I
4: expect the offsprings to have abnormal behaviors. So I'm expecting um, them to have some kind of repetitive behaviors than control offsprings. And I'm not sure because nobody has ever done this before, and I'm excited to find out.
0: Will you be looking at maybe the genetic components of these mice as well?
4: So I'm actually currently looking at the transcription, transcriptomics of the fetal brain, fetal brains. And we do see some uh, very subtle differences from control mice. Why is transcriptomics important for the brain? So basically, transcriptomics gives you the instruction of how brain functions. Yeah, so that's what I'm currently looking at. And we do see some differences between control and infected mice.
1: That's really interesting, Justin. But then everyone here has such different projects. Where do you all work in the campus?
2: So we work in the Institute for Quantitative Health Science and Engineering, otherwise known as IQ. That's on the south side of campus. Our professor, Jonathan Hardy, he actually was one of the first in IQ. He came with a group from Stanford and started in August of 2017 when we all did as well. And yeah, so that's where we we do most of our experiments.
1: And then what motivated each of you to pursue this kind of research
3: yeah so in my undergrad i was just kind of not really sure what i was want to be doing with my life until i took a uh, microbiology themed class and it became really interested in microbiology and the microbiome and that eventually led me to looking at pathogenic bacteria and michigan state has a really good up-and-coming pathogen pathogenic bacteria part of our department and one thing led another and then i'm here
2: as an undergrad, I was initially a pre-medical student and just fell in love with the research about halfway through college and decided that I really wanted to pursue a research career. So I got here, like John said, we have a really good department and did, did rotations as you're supposed to do as a PhD student, which are about 10-week trial runs in the labs that you're interested in. And it just really clicked really well with Jonathan and his lab and with John and Justin as well. It was really important for me to be in an environment where I felt comfortable working, but also loved the research. And I'm very comfortable where I work, very happy where I work. But I also am really interested in the research that I do because it's kind of the interface between microbial biology and medicine.
4: So I actually have a master's degree because I wasn't, at the end of my uh, undergrad, senior year, I wasn't sure if I want to do um, industry work or get a higher degree. So I decided to get a master's degree and I fell in love with research. And here I am, I'm getting a, um, try to pursue a PhD at Michigan State.
0: Where did you get your master's degree and in what?
4: So I got my master's from Cal Poly Pomona, which is in California. And I studied the microbiological quality of packaged ice. So I collect, actually this is a funny story. So I collected uh, packaged ice from convenience store or gas stations and compared with uh, manufactured packaged ice. And you do see some kind of disgusting differences.
1: And why are they disgusting?
4: It's contaminated with different uh, microbes that you don't want to know. I think I do want to know. Tell me more. (laughs) So I found E. coli and a very high number of microbes.
0: And these are the ice used to like transport food or whatever?
4: Oh, actually, you could put it in your drinks, uh, like soda, um, your alcoholic beverages.
0: That's pretty cool, Justin. You used to study ice, and now you're over here at Michigan State studying the placenta. What do you all do for fun? Are you guys in any organizations or anything?
3: Uh, Well, I'm not in any organizations, but I do play a lot of the intramural sports on campus, and I played rec league uh, baseball this past summer and just play other sports and activities like that.
2: So outside of the lab, I'm involved with a lot of outreach projects. This summer I actually just completed an internship with plant biology on campus. It's a it's a undergraduate program where they bring in undergraduates from different universities and give them some research experience for the summer. So I was kind of mother goose to all of these undergrads for the summer and helped mentor them and teach them different aspects of how to communicate your research. I also kind of came up with my own outreach project as part of the MSU BEST program, which I'm a part of, and I'll explain that in a minute. So I do outreach with local Girl Scout troops where I go and talk about science and how to become a scientist and what being a scientist means. And I have some hands-on activities that I get to do with the troops, and it's really fun to spend some time with them and reach out to these girls who may not have seen themselves as future scientists otherwise, and some of them have become pretty interested, which is really cool. As I said a minute ago, I am a part of the MSU Best Program, which is an NIH-funded program which seeks to give scientists broader training. A lot of scientists have fallen into the trap of only being trained to be academics, but few scientists realize that it's likely that you won't end up in an academic career. There just aren't that many positions available, and you need training for things like industry and government regulation and outreach and communication, and that's what the program aims to do. I I joined just because I knew that I didn't want a career in academia.
4: So I'm also in the uh, BEST program, uh, same program as Kayla, and I'm also the uh, co-president of Asian
1: Pacific American Graduate Alliance. What was it like starting in the lab together those years ago, and how did you know which project you were going to divert into?
2: So John and I were the first ones to start in the lab together, and like I said earlier, our our professor who's, who runs our lab, he was new at the time. So he started in August, and John and I started in November. And we had almost nothing in the lab. There was so little in the lab for us to do any sort of experiments on. We were waiting for clearances to work with different organisms. We were waiting for shipments to come in. And John and I kind of, like, sat and read papers for 2 months. But it was really a good experience because I think a lot of graduate students are thrown into their experiments and they don't get the time to sit and read the background and I feel like we're we're really well read up on that. And it was also really good just being in the lab with John and our boss Jonathan and getting to know them for a few months and realizing that they are people that I could definitely work with for five years.
3: Like Kayla said, we started out, we had literally nothing. Like one time I had to fashion a tube roller out of styrofoam and like literally use tape to tape it up and just like the most unprofessional thing you've ever seen. And so we have uh, experiences like that, but like Kayla said, it was really good to start out with this uh, brand new lab. And because I had to force to start my research project from the very beginning, I became very well, I'm very well versed, at least I like to think so, on my project, and where some people are just kind of like handed it and it's like, here you go. I was forced to just look up everything and figure out what I'm doing on my own.
0: Well, I'm happy that your lab has evolved now because I know that the Institute of Quantitative Health has state-of-the-art technology, and I'm happy that your lab was able to get situated. What about you, Justin?
4: So I was actually the uh, third grad student that Jonathan recruited, and Kayla actually introduced me to Jonathan. And once I talked to him, I fell in love with his research projects, and I actually really liked his personality. He's very supportive, he's very talkative, and I really like that, so I decided to join.
0: Awesome. Kayla, you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you know that you don't want to go into academia. What about you, John, and Justin? What do you all want to do?
3: Uh... That's a great question and one I'm personally trying to figure out right now. I love working in lab. I love doing research, but academia has a bunch of different pressures outside of what you traditionally think of of just doing lab work. So something that I would like to do, that I know I'd like to do, is I was actually able to mentor an undergrad this past year, and I really enjoyed that experience. So I know whatever it is that my future career, I would think mentoring and teaching would be involved in it somehow. So I would also like to work in the industry,
4: uh, same as Kayla. And I'm not exactly sure, but I'm interested in um, doing a startup company in the future and maybe some kind of consulting um, for different patients.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining Danny and I this morning. Do you have any advice for maybe children who are interested in going into science but not sure if they want to become a scientist or not?
3: I would say is never be afraid to ask questions. That's really what science always comes down to is just asking questions why that is? How does that work? Why does it work that way? Um, just going even today, I we are constantly asking questions, constantly feeling like we don't really know what we're doing, but still trying to figure things out. Just never be afraid to ask questions.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think asking questions is the most important thing you can do as a scientist. I would also say don't give up because. Science can be hard and it can be discouraging some days, but the good days and the discoveries and all of it makes the bad days so worth it. And you'll, you'll face science classes that will be hard and it'll be some of the hardest work you have to do. But again, it's definitely worth it and it's exciting. It's exciting stuff.
4: Lastly, I would say I feel like science is a um, very collaborative community. So you're not alone. So if you reach out, there's going to be people uh, try to help you. So try to reach out. Don't be shy. I know it's intimidating.
1: But if you do the work, um, someone will help you. That was really nice, you all. Thank you for joining us today again. Thank
2: Thank you you for having us. us. (laughs)
1: Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week, and remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.